Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. If you're a guest, I don't usually sound like an 80-year smoker, um, but I do today, so you can uh, bear with me on that one. Uh, we're talking about Isaiah. I'm preaching Isaiah 45, 46, and 47. If you've been with us for a couple of weeks, um, you're kind of getting the measure, the, getting the message of Isaiah. One of the things that Hebrew poetry, the way it works, is it looks at the same thing through different angles again and again and again. And so the themes present and represent and present and represent. It's kind of like looking at it like this. You pick it down, you set it down, you pick it up, you look at it like this, you set it down, you look at it like this. This is like the way it's going. And so the book of Isaiah, especially the section as we're going through 40 to 55, is making the same points again and again and again. And those points are, God is God, you're not. The oppressors will lose. Your idols are pathetic. And it's every single time making those same exact points. And so if you're listening carefully every single week, you'll realize that we're saying the exact same thing every single week. And what you'll realize is that hearing it again and again doesn't actually make you different. You've probably heard it multiple times in a row now. Hey, your idols are worthless. Stop worshiping them. And then you all went home and worshiped them anyway all week long. <laughs> How many of you in this room have successfully put off all of your idolatry? None of us have. And this is a book written to God's people meant to make the point and make the point and make the point again and again and again because we need our hearts changed over time, bit by bit by bit, chunk by chunk by chunk. And this is not to our shame. This is just reality. That to be part of God's people is to continue to struggle with idolatry. To be part of God's people is to continue to give our hearts to places where it doesn't belong. That we hold Christ in one hand and we hold our idols in another. That's just true. We shouldn't be proud of it, but we should acknowledge it as reality and see that the rest of our lives are this journey of putting off the old way and putting on the new way. And we make progress, but we're like the stock market. We go up, we go down. Generally, the trend is positive, but there are really bad days and there are really good days. That's what we're dealing with here. And in this particular part, we're hitting this section where God is critiquing and attacking the, the oppressors in a big way. And so this is, uh, you know, like I, I pass this billboard on the way from my house to the gym. So I live on uh, Higley and Williamsfield. My gym's on Guadalupe and Higley. And I pass this billboard. It's by some guy named the Tattooed Realtor. He's got a pretty consistent brand, if you've noticed him. His, his brand is I have tattoos everywhere. And that's, I mean, he's doing a great job. He's pretty consistent. So this billboard, uh, you know, I, it reminds me every time I pass it that, you know, life is difficult. But right now, it's especially difficult if your name is Karen. That's a tough, a tough pill to have to swallow. I don't know if you've seen Karen's. It's a tough time to be a Karen nowadays. Karen, you know, is a high maintenance, uh, a persnickety person who's always trying to talk to the manager. That's Karen, you know. And so, uh, but he has this billboard that's, uh, you drive past it and there's like this lady on her phone who's like obviously upset. And it's like, do you live by Karen? Sell your house. Get out now. Run away as far as you can. You know, go with somebody else. So I don't know if this guy's a good realtor or not, but he's at least got consistent brand messaging and there's something they're going on. But this whole section, like, can I speak to the manager? I don't, you know, I don't like it when I have to speak to the manager. Um, you know, it's like, because most of the time the managers can't do anything, they're not the owners. But this, what's going on here is Israel is under oppression or at least marginalization. Maybe they're oppressed, but at least they're marginalized. The Babylonian rule has decimated them. They're in bad shape. There's this coming leader, a guy named Cyrus, who makes our worst presidents look like the best people in the history of the world. And there, it is not good shape, and Israel is marginalized. And Israel is kind of having this frustration with middle management. And the Lord comes up and says, do you want to speak to a manager? Because I'm in charge here. That he's going, look, just so you know, everything that's going on is happening under my reign and rule. So if you've got problems with middle management, you have problems with me. 
He's absorbing the blame that Israel's trying to put on him. And he says it in a variety of ways. But we're going to see here that Israel's people get to speak to the manager, who is Yahweh, God Most High. And he's going to say, just so you know, I got everything under control. Chill out a little bit. And we're going to see about how Babylon is ultimately powerless. We're going to see about how Babylon's idols are ultimately powerless. And then how God is actually willing to extend mercy to Babylon, despite them being the dysfunctional oppressors that they are. And so let me pray, and we're going to walk through this text. Lord, I pray that you'll have mercy on us and you'll help us see ourselves in the hearts of the people being addressed here in Isaiah and ask that you'll enable us and allow us uh, to be critiqued and encouraged by what you're saying here. In your name we pray, amen. So chapter 45, verse one. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, to his anointed, this word Messiah, to Cyrus. Now, Israel at first, right away would have heard this verse and gone, excuse me, what? You're calling Cyrus your anointed? Cyrus, that oppressor, Cyrus, that murderer, Cyrus, that conquester, Cyrus, that, uh, that colonizer, that, you're calling him your anointed? That seems ridiculous because Israel is always looking for their anointed to be someone that God was going to place in power and make things better. But here it looks like God's placing someone in power and he's clearly not making things better. If anything, he's making things worse. And God goes, yeah, anybody who has any stretch of authority anywhere is somehow under my appointment or my authority. There's no leaders in positions anywhere that I haven't allowed or at least authored to have happen. He goes on to say this, whose right hand I have grasped. Not only have I appointed him, but I've taken his hand like he's a child and I've subdued the nations before him to loosen the belts of kings, to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed. Basically, I've paved this way for him so that success is not just likely, but it's certain I've made this possible. And I say to Cyrus, verse two, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break into pieces doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I'll give you treasures of darkness and hordes of secret so that you may notice I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. He's saying, look, Cyrus, listen to me. You are successful and it is not because of you, it is because of me. This is a reminder to all of us that whether we say we're Christians or not, whether we follow the Lord or not, any measure of success, whether you've built a company or a church or a business or a family or a household or yourself, all success is ultimately owed to God, period, the end. Nobody gets to say, I did this, not even Cyrus. I cut through the bars of iron, I made the way, I cleared the path, I made this possible. And what God is saying to Cyrus is, just so you know, you don't even know me, but I know you and I'm using you. You are a pawn on my chessboard. So get humble. He goes on to say, for the sake of my servant Jacob and for Israel my chosen, I've called you. So he's going, yes, you're oppressing Israel, but I'm teaching them a lesson. Their oppression is their own fault. They've been unfaithful. I name you though you do not know me. I'm the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. We have to understand here that a condition of being used by God is not that someone actually knows God. But if you exist in God's world, God can use you for his purposes, period, the end. And this is one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible here is Isaiah 45, 7. I was excited when I got to preach this because it just rules out any possibility that there are accidents going on all over the world. Isaiah 4:5-7. Yahweh says this, I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, that word there is shalom or wholeness, and I create calamity, that could be translated evil, it's where ra'ah, I am the Lord who does all these things, it could be also translated, I am the Lord who does everything. Point at something, me, responsible, author, sustainer, creator, motivator, enabler. 
Now, the thrust of this text is this absolute no maverick molecule sovereignty. As I've titled this sermon, No Maverick Molecules, which I totally rip off from a guy named R.C. Sproul. Here's a quote he says about this um, under Babylon's Powerless. If there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, there is no confidence that you can have in any promise that God has ever made. God is looking at Israel saying, look, I've made promises about the future. But your faith in me is not just about the future, but it's about the fact that I'm working right here and right now. On what basis can you trust God for the future? On what basis can you trust God with the resurrection of the dead? On what basis can you trust God that he's going to deliver and provide if you can't trust that he's authoring what's going on right now? If it's chaos now, but promise in the future, that doesn't add up. R.C. Sproul makes this point. Isaiah makes this point. You can trust me with your future because what's going on right now is ultimately under my authority. Babylon is powerless. I know it feels like Babylon has all this power. I know it feels like you're under their thumb and under their oppression. I know it feels like Babylon would be very much like the United States nowadays. The biggest military superpower with all the technology that they've leveraged for military gain. The biggest gross domestic product. The most capacity to impose their will on the universe. And it feels like, man, if we lose the approval of Babylon, we're totally hosed. Somewhat like the United States right now, right? I wouldn't necessarily say, I mean, there's maybe different pockets where Christians are oppressed, but at a minimum, they're like marginalized, like loss of influence. It's kind of similar to Babylon. And God is saying, I have Babylon on a leash. I say jump, Babylon says, how high? Just get that squared away. He goes on to say this, In verse nine, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or why doesn't this have handles? Will you command me, verse 11, concerning my children and the work of my hands? See, I was a philosophy major. I sat in a circle with 18 and 19 year olds who were also philosophy majors who love to turn everything into some philosophical argument. Can God microwave a burrito so hot he can't eat it? Well, And it's partly the human condition. We want to turn the promises of God's sovereignty into philosophical problems to be solved. But the thrust of way this is meant to function in people of Israel is hope, encouragement. I'm in control. You're in the back seat. I'm in the driver's seat. Know your role. Stay in your lane. I got this. Chill out. It's meant to be encouraging. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a truth to be encouraged by. Now I know that there's a lot of questions about if God is so sovereign, why is there all this garbage happening in the world? And the question of then becomes not is he all sovereign, is he all powerful, but the question can become is he good? C.S. Lewis in his journal a couple days after his wife died, one of the things he says is, I'm not really tempted to disbelieve that God is sovereign, but I am tempted to think that I don't like him. And about a third of the Psalms, 50, 60 of them, are all these types of prayers of lament where you're expressing discontent to God. God, if you're this, then how come this? I believe that you're this, but my experience is this. And there's this gap between expectation and experience. And we come to God in relational honesty and in prayer and we, we relationally connect. And I'm telling you, all of that is good and valid and true. However, I want to pause and say the thrust of this text is not come to God with your questions, but it's submit and be humbled under the Almighty One, the Holy One of Israel. 
that even in the new heavens and new earth, we will remain finite creatures under the authority of the creator. Even when we come to God relationally and say, I don't understand, help me understand. We have to do understand that we're coming so as clay coming to the potter saying, help me understand. We're not coming in judgment of God, but we're coming asking God for connection and understanding. There's a time and a place, and I don't want to at all discourage this, this lamenting, wrestling, questioning, and prayer that is good and that's valid. But the thrust of this text is, know your lane, stay in your lane. I am God, you are not. No maverick molecules. Cyrus is not outside of my control. Babylon is outside of my control. Do not come to me, tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing with my children. Do not come to me, tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing with the clay that I am making. I got this. And the thrust of that for us as Redemption Church, as Redemption Gateway, is that we would be humbled, that we would sense that God is writing a story bigger and better than we can even begin to grasp or comprehend. That trying a dog trying to understand its master, we are creatures trying to understand the creator and the gap is bigger between me and God than my dog and me. And we gotta have this humility in approaching the all-sovereign one. Babylon is powerless. Not only is Babylon powerless, but his idols are powerless. The things they worship, the things they follow, the things they're trying to go after, they're nothing. Babylon trusts in sorcerers, which seems ridiculous. Here's what it says in chapter 47, verse 12. After God says, I'm gonna gonna punish you and invite you back, he says, stand fast. This is God using sarcasm. Maybe you've been told you shouldn't be sarcastic, but... God is at least sometimes. So here you go. Stand fast in your enchantments and in your many sorceries with which you've labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens. So you got like, you got people looking at, you know, they're they're the Libra or they're a Gemini and looking at the stars and carving it up and trying to predict the future based on where the moon is going. And you have these wizards going abracadabra and the Lord goes, by all means, use your sorcerers, bring them out, do it. What do you want to do? Gaze at the stars who at the new moons make known to you what shall come to you. He says, verse 14, they're like stubble. The fire will consume them. They cannot deliver themselves from even the power of the flame. You trust in sorcerers? Are you nuts? You're trying to predict the future based on what the moon is doing? Look, you look ridiculous. The chapter 47 is called the humiliation of Babylon because ultimately all sin to some degree or in some way is humiliating in hindsight. It's embarrassing to think about the things we've trusted in that are not God. Likewise, he says that they trust in these statues. Are you kidding me? You have no knowledge. You carry about wooden idols. This is 45 verse 20. You keep on praying to this God that won't save. You keep rubbing this genie bottle saying, help me, help me, and then nothing happens. You carry these things that are born as beasts or are weary on beasts. So, like, so in verse 46, verse 1, he's like, maybe you don't just carry around a little wooden one in your pocket. Maybe you carve out an idol so big you have to get a donkey to carry it around. Congratulations, a big idol carried around by a donkey. 46, verse 7, or they, or they get ones that are like medium-sized. You lift it to your shoulder, not in your pocket, not in a donkey, but a nice medium-sized idol. You can carry it around. You, know, it's, it, you, you, get it around, you carry that around. You set it in its place. It stands. It doesn't move from its place. It's so easy to look at the idols of the ancient Near East and think, what a bunch of Neanderthals. It's very easy. Sorcerers, statues, 
Not me. I'm smarter than that. I would never do that. Man, this is one of the reasons why I think that intergenerational relationships are so important and intercultural relationships are so important is that it's way easier to see other generations' idols than your own. It's way easier to see other cultures' idols than your own. This is like, it's easier to look out the window and say, there it is, than to look in the mirror and say, there it is. I think you talk to my nine-year-old grandma, hey, what do you think about kids and their phones these days? And you can go like, oh, well, she's grumpy and 90. But guess what? She's not, and she's right. Likewise, you could ask a Gen Zer, hey, what do you think about politics and, and the, the, the boomers? And they go, oh, I have some thoughts about that. And you could say, well, they're young and stupid. Or you could say, maybe they're right. This is the body of Christ. And this is like on the topic of embarrassing. So um, maybe about six weeks ago, I went on like a 36-hour silent retreat, which is code for I just wanted to sleep away from my kids for a little bit. You know, my wife, my wife is kind enough to give me license to do this. And I left my phone at home. I remember putting it um, like where it charges at home. Uh, and I started to drive away. And I had this separation anxiety <laughs> like an infant, you know, Where's mom? You know, like, what if I get lost? What if someone calls? What if, what if, what if, what if, how am I going to be taken care of? Do I know? I had to like memorize four directions, you know, turn right, turn left, turn right, turn right. And I'm like, can I get it straight? I don't know. Like I remember sermons for 40 minutes, but I can't remember how to take four turns. You know, I'm, I'm like, I've, like, it's like the umbilical cord just ripped out a second time, you know, like, can I survive outside this womb of protection, you know? And, and, I, and I'm driving away. I'm going like, I'm having like separation. This is embarrassing. This is pathetic. This is, and, and, but if you think about like the power of what an idol is, it's the thing you go to, to be soothed, to feel safe, to feel secure, to give you meaning, to interpret the world for you. Like sometimes you think about idols and it's only thing about statues, but we have this show that's on TV called American Idol. That's probably a more helpful way of understanding idol. Like you think about pop stars as idols. Like it's things that people look up to that shape your desires and you want to be like, like celebrity, like the celebrity culture. Like you might think, oh, I don't want to be like Kim Kardashian, but you do want to be like some other celebrity like Ben Shapiro. I want to be able to talk about liberals like Ben Shapiro, man, that'd be nice. Or I don't want to look like Kim Kardashian. And so we all have our different celebrities that we like look to to go like, man, I would love to be able to do that like they do. And they shape our affections and our desires and their heart. And they provide for us this artificial sense of security. And when you, when you step back and look at the power that celebrity and technology and find, like I got rid of social media for a while there on my phone and I was like this is gonna be great I'm gonna be let I'm be more present in my life and I just started checking ESPN and the stock app more you know it's like whatever necessary I need to do to like not be present to my friends and family I'll find a way to get rooted out, out rooted for, and so like these are what idols do they they take us away from the things we love the most and they shape our affection and heart and give us artificial sense of security and we might not go to sorcerers we might not bow down to statues celebrities, technology, these things unduly shape us. And when we reflect on our lives, I think one of the emotions we'll have is embarrassed. Man, I trusted in that. Man, I bought into that. Man, I gave that so much time. You know, I was talking to someone who's like, man, I got my screen time down to four hours a day. And I'm like, when you're old, you'll go like, I thought that was a win. Are you kidding me? four hours a day. Like, 
like the the things we count as wins are a lot like uh, I think in hindsight we'll have a similar feeling that there will be this acknowledgement. God is going, look, your idols are so pathetic. They're just so pathetic. They command you, you listen, get rid of them, burn them, and you hold on to them. And I think about, you know, my son's three, and I don't know what he's going to be like when he grows up, but if I had to guess right now what he was going to be when he grows up, grows up, it would be lawyer, because everything is an argument. Don't touch that. Win. Right now, don't touch it. Can I touch it on Wednesday? Can I touch it on Thursday? Can I touch it before the sun comes up? Can I touch it when the sun goes down? Can I touch it with my elbow? Can I touch it with my foot? Can I touch it if you're looking? Can I touch it if you're not looking? Can I touch it with one eye closed? And it's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and when I'm in a healthy state of mind, I know this is part of development, you know, boundary pushing, whatever. But I tell you what, when I... Uh, well, I'm really, when my heart is warm, this is something I, you know, you take for granted and then you get it, is sometimes when I say, Jay, don't do that. And he just goes, okay, dad. And I'm like, who wants me to teach a parenting class, you know? <laughs> but it just warms your heart. Every now, and sometimes later he'll ask why, but sometimes just like, okay, dad, and he moves on. And it just warms my heart. And I, and it's just con- like I appreciate it. And like when I think about this, like God going, I'm absolutely sovereign. Your idols are nothing. Get rid of them. And we want to go, but, 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 why, why, why? What about, what about, what about? And I just more and more want to be the type of child who says to the Father in heaven, okay, Dad, I'll figure it out later. I'll understand more later. But right now it's just, okay, Dad. I just know like the joy that brings me with my kids just, Trust and obey without having to get out the lawyer's, you know, dog and pony show every single time. And I just, the main metaphor God gives us, that he's father, we're child. And it's God warm his heart when we just go, okay, dad, I don't need that. Okay, dad, you're sovereign in control. Not what about, what about, what about, what about. And as, as bad as Babylon looks here, Right, this is part of the tension is Babylon's absolutely responsible for their choices to worship idols. Babylon's absolutely responsible for their, their participation in the oppression of Israel. And God is absolutely in control and sovereignly ordained it to be. And that creates tension to live with. It's not really a problem we can solve. But ultimately, there is good news for Babylon. It's not like Babylon is eternally, forever, um, pre-committed to being totally on the outside and hosed, but this is why kind of the, the middle of the section is actually an invitation to Babylon, an invitation to Cyrus. Here's what it says in chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So it's not turn to me and be saved, Israel. It's not turn to me and be saved, moral people. Uh, he says, turn to me and saved all the ends of the earth. For I myself have sworn, my mouth has gone out in righteousness, and the word shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Anyone can get in on this. See, this is radically different than all the other visions of God in the ancient Near East. Because the Babylonians had their tribal ethnic deities. The Canaanites had their tribal ethnic deities. Egypt had their tribal ethnic deities. And maybe they're tempted, Israel's probably tempted to think, we have our tribal ethnic deity. But God's saying, no. 
This is not about ethnicity. This is not about being a Hebrew per se. This is about being Jewish. And in Romans chapter two, it says that a true Jew is one who worships Yahweh inwardly, that to be an Israelite is to be a person of faith. To be of faith in Yahweh is to be part of Abraham's family, part of the nation of Israel. And this is what he's saying here. He's like, turn to me and be saved. Anybody can become a part of Israel. This is not an ethnic thing. This is not a regional thing. This is a global thing, and it is a faith thing, and you are all welcome. Come on in. There's an invitation. Whenever you want to stop worshiping your little statue in your pocket or the one on your shoulder or the one on your donkey, toss it off and come on in. Anybody's welcome. Turn to me and be saved. All the earth. But he gives these, what I would call like three conditions or three exhortations or, or three core confessions that's going to take that are radically countercultural for Babylon and radically countercultural even for Israel to really grab hold of. And, and I don't want to assume that everyone in this room even knows what it means to um, be a follower of Jesus or what, it mean, what you're giving up in becoming a follower of Jesus. But I want, there's three key confessions that we get here and one uh, key thing for the church that I want us to hold on to. And the first key confession we get is that there is no other God. So we take monotheism for granted because it's been like normal for a couple thousand years, especially in the West. But I'm telling you, these tribal deities, these like regional things, you know, there's the queen, the God of Queen Creek, the God of Tempe, you know, the God of New Mexico, the God of California. Some of you are like, they do have their own God over there. But I'm just saying like, that's not how it works. Like we can, we assume this thing. That's not really how it works, that there is one God. He says, even these other gods, they're not gods. It, it says, it was it not I, the Lord in verse 21, that there is no other God besides me. These things you call gods, but they're false gods. So they're not even really gods at all. He goes on to say, verse five, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? He's going, you guys are doing this like, I don't know, the Babylonian gods, that statue's pretty nice. Joe made it. He does it over there. He carved it out real nice. What about, I don't know, or Yahweh, God most high. And they're doing this like, oh, which one's better? And he's going, you're doing this comparison thing like you're nuts. You know, the, the comparison thing, that's all like, like beat to death is like the LeBron versus Michael Jordan thing, right? You know, LeBron passed Kareem in points and now it's like, who's the greatest now? And whatever you think about that, you at least have to understand that people are debating it and therefore it is debatable. That's the definition of debatable. People are debating it, right? There's uh, arguments to be made and God is going, this is not like a who's better, LeBron or, 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 uh, or Michael Jordan. He's going, you're talking about a piece of wood and God most high, creator of heavens and earth, Yahweh, none like me. Stop doing this compare and contrast thing. But we do it all the time. Do I want to be faithful to God most high or do I want to fudge on my taxes and get a little money back? Do I want to be faithful to God most high or do I want to gossip and slander selectively? Do I want to be faithful to God most high or do I want to just resort to clearing my internet history? Do I want to be faithful to God most high or do I want to um, meander and cheat and steal and, and position myself? Do I want to be faithful to God most high or do I want, by all means want to climb the corporate ladder? And we go like, oh man, this is a tough choice. Do I want to play politics and, you know, and stab people in the back? And, and we feel that tension in a variety of places. And God's going, stop. Stop doing that. There's no other God besides me. There is no other. There's none like me declaring the end from the beginning. I, like, I, I have declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. My counsel will stand. I will accomplish my purpose. Stop. There, there is only one God. 
Number two, <clears throat> we got here. We got to confess our wickedness and vulnerability. Here's a tough text. This is verse 40, chapter 47, verse 10. This is God confronting Babylon. And even when he's confronting Babylon, he's confronting Israel along with Babylon because Israel so often gets swept up in being just like the place which they've been sent, just like we are so often more like Americans than like Christians. Here it says in 47 verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge has led you astray. Meaning it's like your wisdom and your knowledge, you're not leaning on the Lord's wisdom, it's your own knowledge, your own wisdom has led you astray. You said in my heart, I am, there's no one here besides me. Meaning you think, I don't see what's going on. You felt secure in your wickedness. I will get away with this. But evil will come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Your personality isn't gonna help you out of this one. Disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone. You're not gonna be able to fix it. You can't add some good works to get rid of these bad works. It's not gonna work. You can't make up for it on your own. And ruin will come upon you suddenly of which you know nothing. You're wicked. You're rebellious from the heart. You go your own way. And not only that, but you're vulnerable to my judgment. You can't escape it. You can't hide it. It will be found out. Whew. Like it sounds harsh and it sounds intense, but no one becomes a Christian without first acknowledging these two realities. That I am a sinner prone to doing evil and I am in, ju- I'm in danger of God's judgment. You got to recognize this. You got to acknowledge this. In the age of clearing your inner history, this is, this is a difficult one for us to make sense of. But then the good news, the third confession, <clears throat> is that justification is only in the Lord. We see this in 45, 24, and 25. Only in the Lord it shall be said, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. Verse 25, in the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. In the Lord, in Christ, in faith with him, the offspring of Israel, the ones who praise Yahweh innerly, the ones who have faith in Yahweh, the ones who are part of God's people by faith, only in that people will anyone be justified. And notice here, it's not that they might be justified. It's not that they can be justified. It's not that they hopefully will make it out on the last day. It's not that they're likely to. It's that they shall be justified and they shall glory that God's justification of sinners is not a possibility. It is a certainty when you trust in Jesus. That no other lawyer, no other deal maker, no other atonement, no other sorcerer, no other statue, no other God can at all do you any favors on the last day except for Yahweh God Most High. And if you trust in him for salvation, if you trust in him as the sovereign one, if you trust in him as the just and the justifier of the sinners, then you shall be justified and you shall receive glory, not possibility, but certainty. That's good news. And it's not just for Jews. It's not just for the ethnic Israelites. It's for all who would come by faith to become a part of God's people of Israel. See, God's presenting them with this choice. You know, in Hebrew, when words 
present and represent themselves, especially in the same numbers, it's significant. So we see this three times in chapter 45, verse 20. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols. Chapter 46, verse 1. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. 46, verse 7. They lift their shoulders to carry it. They said it's on its place and stand it cannot move. We see this, this uh, opposite move of this. We see this 46, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born for me before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you, I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and I will save. That he is presenting this choice. You can continue to worship the idols that you must carry, or you can worship the God who carries you. Pick. It should be obvious. I'm willing to carry you wherever I want to take you. I'm the God who carries his people. Those people carry around their gods. Pick. Choose. My daughter Olivia, she's 13 months old. And about three days ago, maybe even two days ago, her preferred or her second preferred mode of getting around became walking. You know, about a week, week and a half ago, it would be like take a step or two, fall, and just crawl the rest of the way. But now it's like take a step or four, fall, stand up and keep trying to walk. And so it's kind of fun. She's, I don't know if that technically makes you a toddler, but she's toddling. So I think that makes you a toddler, but she's walking around. And so now crawling's her third, walking's her second, but still her preferred mode of getting around is this. Ugh. Not a talker yet, just a toddler. Ugh. And when I got my headspace correct, when I haven't overpacked my life, when I'm not overly tired, when I'm um, have my understanding of time and how slippery it is, rightly dialed in, my preferred method of her getting around is this too. It doesn't last; it goes away. I understand, but sometimes I'm like, just get yourself there. <laughs> just walk, crawl. but our father in heaven he's not like us he doesn't get tired doesn't grow weary he doesn't run out of steam he's he's not preoccupied he's not dizzied he's not i should have had one less kid he's not he's he's uh he's omnipotent he's sovereign he has more energy than the most energetic toddler and he says i'll carry you i will do that but we forget all the time. This is the main exhortation that we have for Israel here. 46 verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. That Israel must remember, 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 there's none like him. And the primary ministry of this church is remembering. We don't come here every week for new information and fresh insight. It's nice when that happens. But the main thing we do is we come here to remember, remember, remember there is one God that I'm wicked and vulnerable and that justification's only in him and he's a sovereign one who does everything and I can trust him 
That's why we take communion, because Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. It's because we are forgetful people. We come, have a great moment with the Spirit and worship and prayer and singing. We walk out the door, someone cuts off in traffic, and we forget that we're Christians. The work of remembering is the primary thing that we must do in our own spiritual formation and development of faith. Because there is a God who is interested in and loves to carry us. From the moment we're in the womb to the time we're old and gray, he is interested in carrying us and he will save us and we must remember this. So you choose. Do you want to worship a God you carry or do you want to worship a God who carries you? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for the, the push we get from it. God, I pray that we'll trust in you as the absolutely sovereign one. I pray that we would embrace the work of finding out our idols over the course of our lives. That we do what we can to put them off and repent from them and leave them behind. God, help us sense and experience that you are in fact carrying us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.